Hey, welcome family to my Irreligious Life podcast with your host, Jermaine Thomas, aka The Professor. Deconstructing and deconverting from your faith is a very difficult journey. The process can have psychological and emotional implications. Join us as we have a heartwarming and engaging dialogue around this and so much more. Let's get it, family. I want to start today's episode off by sending a special shout out to our podcast listening audience. We are growing and our reach is expanding. And that's all possible because of you, my irreligious life family. I make no concessions here. We are a deprogramming space, a safe space, and a landing place for so many navigating the deconstruction continuum of deconstructing, decolonizing, for some deconverting from their faith altogether. No matter where you land on the spectrum of ideas spiritually, my Irreligious Life podcast has something for you. And some housekeeping rules, family. Go push the alert tab on your podcast streaming platform so you can be notified when new episodes is posted. I'm also working with platforms to ensure our entire catalog is accessible so that you can catch up on all previous episodes. Okay, now that all the preliminaries are out of the way, right? <laughs> Let's jump right into this thing, eyes wide open, hearts wide open, and your minds wide open. I want to tell you my story of giving Jesus his life back. Now, coming to that moment of clarity in my life wasn't an easy one because there was a lot, and I mean a lot. And I don't even think lot is the best word to even use. So, yes, there was tons. I think tons is a better word. There was tons of indoctrination or better yet, layers of it, layers that I had to unpack and unlearn. The wrestle was real, y'all. But eventually I had to let it all go. And I think as an African-American black man, deconstruction for me meant not only deconstructing bad theology, it also meant peeling back the layers of where religious and social conditioning intersect. So that meant I had to take an honest assessment on things like biblical marriage, which for me constituted all things complementarianism. And that is what my third marriage, <laughs> two marriages uh, ago. And learning all of that and walking through that. And so complementarianism was a large part of my context or my religious context. Shit. And don't even forget about biblical manhood. I almost threw up in my mouth, y'all, when I said that. It also meant I had to take an honest look at colonial and imperial Christianity and decolonizing my faith. A faith family, I had no choice in deciding whether it was for me or not. That choice was made for me the day I was Christian. My parents were what you call cultural Christians. They were non-practicing Baptists, meaning we were the kind of Christians that celebrated the typical faith holidays, <laughs> checked all the Christian boxes. Check this out, y'all. If there was no other point in time when we didn't go to church, but boy, I tell you, it was certain we was going to go to church on Easter and funerals. So I had to sit with all of that on my deconstruction journey. I had to sit with unpacking bad theology around eternal life. I mean, y'all, I put my own daddy and mama in the Christian hell and I was OK with living with that idea. I, like so many, had to unpack bad theology about life in the here and now. And I began to realize that these beliefs were no longer serving my best interests. And I mean, by definition, I was a church kid around eight or nine. I would get my little sister up, get her dressed. And we'll go to church and we'll do this without my parents. Right. My best friend's father at that time was a Presbyterian pastor. And I spent time in their home learning about their Jesus. I learned that their Jesus didn't like rock and roll or heavy metal because it was the devil's music. 
And this is also the era of say no to drugs. So the Christian angst back then was that rock and roll music was the devil's music. And it was also the gateway to drugs. Now, mind you, even at that age, I was pursuing this guy idea and I had a lot of questions and a lot of wonderment about the world around us, like how the world works and who made it, where we come from. And I had a natural affinity towards spirituality. I mean, my choice of books at that age was uh, on things like ESP, psychic abilities and all this other strange and spiritual spooky stuff, right? Or anything on alien or ghosts. I mean, at that age, I was fascinated with shows that talked about the mysteries of the world, the world wonders, even the pyramids. And so I was just one of those kids, y'all. I was a little brown boy living in a little old town called Bangor, Michigan. And my intro into Christendom started in my childhood with an area Baptist church, mainly white Caucasian congregation who would bus all the neighborhood kids to their summer Bible vacation program. And for my mom, I guess it was no biggie, right? Handing us over to these white Christian strangers. And I think looking back, it was a free babysitting service for my moms, <laughs> whom I sure needed it in a break from us. But for us as kids, it was an opportunity to hang out with friends. And for me, the girl I was crushing on for that moment. <laughs> so the highlight of these Christianized incursions for me wasn't the lame Jesus songs we sang. It was the bus ride home on the dark bus where I could hold my girlfriend's hand to our palms drip with sweat. The event was like a scene for Pinocchio, y'all, where all the kids were lured into Pleasure Island. I mean, they had cookies, snacks, games, and they had girls. What young adolescent boy couldn't resist the temptation to hear about the white man's Jesus? Now, we've been going to these events and having these incursions weekly at this Baptist church. The routine was typical. After the fun was over, we'd be corralled into a chapel to hear the boring messages about Jesus dying for our sins, blah, 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 right? But one particular day of all these days, they were given their Jesus spiel, and I failed for the bait and switch. They had baited their little black center fish. I was convinced my humanness was insignificant and that in order to have it, I had to give my heart or open my heart to this loving Jesus. I understood the message clearly that day that if I didn't accept or open my heart to this loving Jesus or his loving father, God, right? I could possibly spend eternity in hell. Now, mind you, like I just said, I was one of those kids that was just open spiritually. I mean, why open family? And that was before I even had this uh, come to Jesus manipulated moment in my life at this age. I was having these little strange occurrences and just a lot of things that was occurring that I couldn't understand at that time that was happening to me spiritually. A brother of mine recently asked me, when did I realize I was awakened? Now, that term may mean different things to different people, but I understood what he was asking me. After taking an introspective pause, I said, brother, I was always awake. And I think that I started to go back to sleep was when I had that come to Jesus moment around eight or nine years old. I mean, I didn't want to go to hell. Although I harassed my little sister a lot, I didn't want her to go to hell either. And that's why I could get us up faithfully every Sunday to go to church minus my mom, the sinner. I mean, who wants to spend eternity burning in hell? And then at that time, like I said, I was open. As a kid, I watched all kinds of movies around the exorcism and the devil that causes your child imagination to run wild. 
You see, I gave Jesus my heart and my life all on the pretense of fear. So combine that with what was already out there culturally about God, Jesus, and the devil. I mean, as kids, we had cultural beliefs around uh, thunderstorms when they were real loud. We'd say things like, God must be angry at the devil. Or we'd say things like, he's stumping across heaven. Or God was angry at mankind. Hearing things like that growing up shapes your worldview and speaks to the depth of both our social and religious conditioning. God was not just a loving father, but he was the judge and executioner of creation. So that was pretty much my introduction into Christendom. When you're deconstructing and your power is being restored to your autonomy, you become conflicted. At least that was my experience. And I didn't ask to deconstruct. But I couldn't ignore the common sense that was being restored to my consciousness. I can best describe the moment like when you're abruptly awakened out of your sleep and you're disoriented. That's deconstruction. At first, when things start to arise in your heart and in your mind, you're like, wait, wait a minute. Hold on. The things that I was led to believe about the Bible being the word of God isn't. You come to find out that there is. Not just one view on hell, but there is four or five other major views on hell. But you was just sold on the one idea. You'd be like, why y'all just didn't say, you know, that there's like these different views on hell and you can pick one. Instead, I was being force fed that at eight or nine years old of that one particular view. When you come to the realization that a lot of your favorite Bible stories and accounts out of the Old Testament never happened. Like, damn, y'all historically nothing the Bible people were more so caricatures of a cultural folklore than real people. That all of this was about an ancient culture and their views on theism. And it's real unsettling because you've been lied to or you feel like you've been lied to. At the height of COVID, my deconstruction went into overdrive. I just didn't come to this moment. It was a process over time, y'all. And I like to call it the house of card effect. I mean, I started out in this thing as one of those Christian literalists that was a part of the new apostolic reformation camp to now being far removed from that, to being one of those progressive theological folks, right? At least that's people's opinion and assessment of me. The house of cars effect started some odd years ago when I changed from being a dispensationalist to being a partial preterist. I mean, I had time in that theological box, y'all. I was learning a different framework of understanding than my biblical literalist upbringing. I mean, I was learning a different framework of understanding than my biblical literalist upbringing, y'all. I was on the cutting edge. I was cutting my teeth on theology now. I even paid to have some formal Bible training at Welton Academy. Exposure to biblical scholarship only continued the house of card effects. And that all came to a head during the height of COVID. Biblical scholarship does change a lens and outlook. You look at things more intently. And as I began to do just that, I came across theologians like an N.T. Wright. I came across uh, Carlton Pearson's work and others. And N.T. And Wright, by the way, he signed my book when his uh, Bible book about the New Testament came out. And he was here in the Chicagoland area speaking. And so he was considered one of my heroes. And then just like that, night and day, I came across Bishop John Shelby. And his work seemed to answer so many questions I had, y'all. And even the ones I tried to keep buried, you know, because I, like I said, I had tons of questions, even in my Pentecostal charismatic days that I just had to sit on the shelf. Things that just stopped making sense. Listen, family, I was the prayer warrior of prayer warriors. I was Mr. Push, baby, praying until something happened. 
And with all that going on, my logical mind that I suppressed so much still stuck around, giving all that damn self-suppression abuse, but still would pop up every now and then. And one of my thoughts was like, yo, Jermaine, you did all that praying for the violence to stop in Chicago. And I was passionate about it too, y'all. And it's getting worse. Something's not right. Like, is it more demons than humans? Like, if I'm binding them, how are these jokers getting loose? Jermaine, can we talk about this some more? And you know what I say? I'll be like, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. I've had plenty of charismatic experiences or those things that are common in these spaces. And I still have some experiences today. But my understanding is rooted in more of an unexplained science And these are more innate within the human experience rather than something outside of us, like a God in the sky. I mean, I prayed once for a person in the emergency room in the Chicagoland hospital and the person left without seeing a doctor. I was in a conversation recently uh, with a minister friend of mine about spiritual experiences, which I know that are highly subjective. And I quoted the science around psychosis. He asserted that I was trying to explain away miracles and things like that. I rebuttal with, I'm not trying to explain them away, but I'm just sourcing them in a different context rather than a Christ-centric experience that's found particularly within charismatic Christian context. I also noted that similar occurrences have occurred in other faith traditions and expressions so that they were not mutually exclusive to the Christian faith. I want you all to grasp the magnitude of this moment, right? So let me spell it out for some of you and give you my ministry pedigree. I preach Jesus on the trains in the buses of Chicago, in the city streets of Chicago. We hung out in the worst neighborhoods of Chicago to bring people to those come to Jesus moments like I did when I was eight or nine. And I did it with the promise of heaven or hell if they rejected my white Jesus message. And I preached it with conviction. I was sold out to this thing, man. I'm telling you, I was knee deep in a new apostolic reformation camp or the new apostolic revelation camp, I like to call them. And I was having house to house fellowships, bringing people to Christ, raising up apostles and prophets and fivefold ministry gifts. And at that time, we were big Miles Monroe fans. And so we were kingdom people, right? The fanfare didn't stop there. I mean, you chased the new thing going on. And I promise you that was never ending. Just one big old parade of foolishness, I like to call it. And my charismatic Christianity it was the big name minister so-and-so who always was getting greater revelations. And then they'll be on TBN or God TV and that stuff spread like wildfire in church entity. I was the second in command of a drug outreach ministry that had a phenomenal impact throughout the city of Chicago. The program got recognition from city officials and we were known among the faith community as the apex of deliverance. We was the deliverance Mecca. And if you wanted to be delivered for real, then send them over to Breakthrough. Bishop John Hinton, who was the son of the late Apostle R.D. Hinton, a monument of faith, my homie and my best friend, may he rest in power, took a young minister under his wing and gave me an opportunity to hone my spiritual gifts. And it was uh, this outreach ministry that spurred my inspiration to be a social worker today. And although I'm far removed from that, young minister and will never join another church again. Monument will be my forever home church. And so even having these conversations about my journey out of Christianity, I still have a value of these spaces and find them to be a utility. I'm saying all of these things to say I was vested, y'all. I mean, I can go into great detail about the great impact I had on the lives of untold thousands. I mean, my best friend and my ministry partner that did the house fellowships with me, 
my brother, I preached to him on my job. I mean, I preached Jesus and to him and to my other uh, uh, friend who was in ministry with us until they both got saved. So I was vested. I'm still impacting lives today. It's just not in an indoctrinated context. It's more in a deprogramming one. I just see the world differently today than the indoctrinated one I grew up in. That eight or nine year old kid is turning 45 on March 11, 2023. I was a little mini followerless in training, right? That's true. When you've been vested like that, there's a lot attached to your belief system, including emotions. And this is why I say that deconstruction is a crisis. It's a mental and emotional crisis, too. Facing the reality of your own indoctrination is not an easy reality to come to. You begin to recall the times your cognitive dishonesty used to kick in back in the day, right? You know, when you heard an atheist or a person outside your religious context make good God sense. I mean, really good points and you just wrote them off. But in deconstruction, your cognitive dishonesty senses don't kick in and you're like wide open mentally. It's a mental crisis because you're going against your ingrained, indoctrinated mental programming. My Christian programming started at eight or nine, and that was a lot to unpack. So people's deconstruction journey and why they deconstruct is different. And if anybody tell you that they are intentional in deconstruction, that's just not how it happens, or at least not in the beginning. For me, at least, it was just a natural occurrence of things, right? You're getting new information and you're critically thinking through it and you're reassessing it to see if it's working for you or not. And if it's not, you just keep going and moving on, right? I mean, when we are not busy suppressing our logical mind, then that's just the natural order of things. Our logical minds aid us through our perceptions. And so people have different experiences within their deconstructing journey. And for me, my reasoning was multi-layered. And for me, my reasoning was multi-layered, right, family? It wasn't just one thing, and it wasn't predicated on a disdain for the church. However, I do have a growing disdain for harmful faith spaces, which is pervasive, as we all should. And it's things like the church's stance against and treatment of the queer community, especially in black sphere spaces, that does add to that disdain. The Christian ideology in its messaging just doesn't resonate with me anymore. My context was evangelical, and I was one of those conservatives, right, or those Christian conservatives. And I mean, my God, I voted for Trump. Now, I will say I wasn't on the Trump train like many of those in the evangelical community. They saw Trump as this prophetic picture because this is what they were getting from their white prophet heroes out of the apostolic reformation movement. You know, the ones that was oddly quiet about black lives. To be honest, at that time, I didn't see white Christian nationalism because the camp I was in was more around or with disgruntled Democrats and the walkaway community, which was a composite of LGBT persons, Asians, Latinos, African-Americans, and others. I didn't even fit in these conservative spaces, even though people viewed me as a conservative, right? Being in some of these conservative spaces, I would hear some crazy stuff, guys, and I would give pushback, and instantly they would accuse me of being a liberal. But when I seen those people storing the Capitol building, Something changed in me. And and as I pondered it and I sat with that, that was the first time I began to realize the reality of religious supremacism and white Christian nationalism. And um, and I became concerned. So, yeah, I voted for Trump as a fuck you to the political establishment. And don't get mad at me, y'all. At least I exercised my right to vote. But now today, 
where I stand on politics, you can fucking keep it. And I'm probably more apolitical and somewhat anarchist. And as my buddy said, my deconstruction journey was on steroids. And the freedom my logical mind started to experience made me question more things and more questions started to come to the surface because I was no longer suppressing them. And one I couldn't ignore and wouldn't ignore is what do I do with Jesus? And here's a fact, y'all, that would never change. I don't care how many theologians or Bible scholars theorize and play in that Christian box. Jesus never confessed nor stated that he was a Christian. So that was just one of those things that just kept coming back to my mind, among other things. And you can hear more details about that in one of my episodes on my Irreligious Life podcast titled Deconstructing Jesus. Listen, God never said to go start a religion called Christianity. You know, that's us. And when we're honest about that, we can conclude that Christianity, in essence, is is definitely made up of religion in and of itself. Now, that's my opinion, but it's a reality to that opinion. It's an informed one. It's not just, you know, some random one where I'm trying to pick at or assault religion in and of itself. But there's a reality to that, that it is man-made. Just think about it. The Christian message is that God is love, right? Then when you consider, well, what is love? And I'm sure that that will mean different things to different people or from person to person. But the agreeable definition, we can say that love is inclusive, right? Love doesn't exclude anyone. And if that's the idea, then that love is also about equality. So we can safely conclude that love is both inclusive and promotes equality. Then why does God need us to worship him? Because then to me, it seems that God loves or God's love needs a lesser. And I'm not ready to concede that we as humans are anything but. And I began to see this dynamic and relationship between me, God and Jesus. Right. And I had to make a choice. And we're considering the following. The Bible is Jewish cultural folklore. And for a long time, I held this Jewish cultural folklore to which I'm generations removed from as an absolute. A thin reality that speaks nothing to my present reality. I live as a black man. And I realized it was supremacist of me to hold to their folklore as an absolute while culturally ignoring my ancestral folklore and that of others as if there is no tangible substantive principles of life to glean from. The human experience is the living water to draw from, not our myths and legends we project upon. Christianity basically told me that being human wasn't enough and that assigning my human significance to a Jesus who never asked anybody or commanded anybody to let him come into their heart, right? <laughs> um, who never commanded us to even take an evangelical approach to our spiritual formation was somehow now my master. Deconstruction for me caused me to take a hard look at both my theological and sociological framework. And I realized that my autonomy was of greater value and that Jesus lived his 33 years according to the Christian tradition and explored his spirituality. And I thought I deserved the same right to do so with mine. And I found value around that of my own humanness and that I didn't need a Jesus narrative for my humanness to have any significance. I found that if God couldn't see me for me, then I didn't need it either. Jesus never asked to be the middle man. Religious minds did that. The myths and legends around Jesus will persist. It just won't be me perpetuating those as absolutes. 
Today, I just refuse to subject my personhood and that of my human agency to Jewish cultural folklore. It's just too many inconsistencies on top of the hypocrisy within the Christ-centric context to continue to bank my spiritual development on it occlusively. Listen, Christianity gave me some good things, no doubt, family. I ain't gonna argue with that. But it also gave me layers, and I mean layers of bullshit I'm still unpacking today. And I'll close with this. You can take it or leave it. At the height of COVID, I was praying about this Jesus idea, and I mean hard. Then I had an open vision, and in it, I saw a silhouette of a person that you can perceive to be Jesus. And as the scene unfolded, I could hear myself thinking, man, what does the face of Jesus really look like? And as I was looking intently, trying to look at the face of Jesus, right? And it was transposed. You couldn't see it. And I'm like, hey, I'm having a David Taylor moment, right? And I started to see different faces as if it was transposed upon this silhouette of a body of this figure. And then these different faces start to flash upon this person or this silhouette of a body. And I began to see a Chinese person's face, a Native American person's face, an Indonesian person's face. And it was just so many different nationalities that were just coming across this face, right? And they were both male and female. And it was the last leg of COVID when this encounter or daydream moment occurred. And I was just sitting in my garage. And after that moment, I began to recall my coming to Jesus moment when I was eight or nine. And I said to Jesus in that moment, I said, you know, your life was never meant to be mine's. And my life was never meant to be yours. And I mean, you lived your 33 years in your truth, and I'm going to live mine. And I found it to be psychologically harming to me and my person to say that if I'm to look into the mirror, that God can't see me and that he has to see Jesus. So when I go to the mirror that I'm not to see uh, myself, but I'm to see Jesus, I can no longer reconcile the idea that the Christian God can only love me and recognize my human significance in Jesus. And based upon if I accepted this person who may not have existed in my fictitious conversation with Jesus, I gave him his life back and he welcomed it. He told me it was always mine. It was never his to take. See, today, Jesus is still my rabbi. He just isn't my master and Lord. That space was always mine to be Lord and master of my own life, not Jesus's. Listen, family, Jesus never asked to be or demanded to be anything to anybody. And that's a fact. Jesus can be a utility and a tool, but he should never be anything more. If my vision taught me anything, if you want to lean into or know who Jesus is, just look at the people around you. But go with this. What's true of Jesus is true of all humanity. God bless you. Happy birthday to me. I'm out. Love you, family. All right. Thank you, family. God bless you. And thank you for tuning in to my Irreligious Life podcast. Thank you for tuning in to my Irreligious Life podcast with your host, Jermaine Thomas, your go-to podcast for religious commentary and so much more. My Irreligious Life is a subsidiary of Black Bereans Media and hit us up for sponsorship opportunities, family. God bless.